Welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. Well, good morning, church. Today in this Easter season, we're going to be spending the next few weeks journeying to the cross as Easter approaches and spending time with Jesus and looking at some key things that he both said and did in his time um, on his, with his earthly ministry. And today we're going to be starting towards the beginning of his ministry and looking at the temptation of Jesus from Matthew 4 verses 1 through 11. So let's read our scripture together now. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of Man, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. I think it's important before we look at the events in Jesus's temptation is to recall what's happened just before this, because just before this in the very early parts of our scripture, we get to see both Jesus's deity and his humanity, how he is both God and human like us. We get to glimpse at both of these and both in Matthew and Luke's gospel also record the temptation events as well as Jesus's baptism just before it. So in his baptism, Jesus had come to John at the river Jordan because he said this was necessary to do so. And then in his baptism, he is declared as the son of God. He has his deity declared in front of a group of people from this voice from heaven. This affirmation of who Jesus is occurs just before he is led by the spirit into the wilderness for his time of temptation. This affirmation, the confirmation of who God is, his identity becomes his foundation. Matthew 7, 25 says, The rains came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. Jesus has had his identity in God confirmed. He is reminded of who he is and whose he truly is. It grounded him and it's given him a sense of his identity and his foundation. And I think it's so crucial for us too, as believers to remember our foundation and where our identity truly lies throughout all times of our faith walk. When we know who we are in Christ and where our firm foundation is found, then it becomes so much easier for us to walk through times of dark valleys. Now, I don't know about you if you remember when you first became a believer in Christ, but oftentimes when people profess their faith in Christ for the first time and they make that 180 degree turn from their old ways, persecution or adversity can follow. It's as if Satan is wanting you to question that what you so firmly decided on days or weeks earlier was not true. Now, I professed my own faith in Christ when I was a teenager, around 15 years old. Through a time in a small group Bible study that I was a part of with other high schoolers, I realized that I was only giving God the leftovers of my life, and I had not made him Lord over my entire life. I was still serving myself ahead of him. 
after I finally decided to give Christ everything and make him Lord of my entire life, I began to notice that I was almost completely left out of my high school existence. I wasn't invited to the same functions, I wasn't called to come hang out ever, and I didn't fit in with those who were seemingly my closest friends. Now, as we all know, or as typically as we know when we're adults, that these things don't seem to matter so much, but as a 15-year-old in a high school full of my peers, this was huge. My previous world seemed to collapse around me, and I was left alone wondering if that spiritual high I'd experienced only a week before was even real. Was it even worth it? Fortunately, that Bible study group that I was a part of continued to support and encourage and help me grow in my faith. They affirmed that I was loved by God and had a place in his family. Maybe for you, it wasn't experiencing rejection during your school years, but it was rejection from a spouse or isolation from your family who didn't believe in Christ, the loss of a dream job or a sudden change financially. Maybe you also experienced a different type of persecution or temptation at some point in your walk with Christ, and it made, your doubt, made you doubt your decision to follow Christ. But instead of doubting it the next time, know that it is biblical. Jesus went through this very thing. He was just confirmed as the Son of God and experiences this beautiful spiritual high. He hears his Father's voice confirming him as his Son, and then suddenly Scripture tells us that the Spirit led Jesus away into the wilderness to a period of fasting and temptation. We see his deity confirmed and lay a foundation for Jesus for his upcoming trials, and then at the very beginning of the passage, we also get to see his humanity revealed. We see his deity confirmed, giving him his foundation he needs before he goes, in goes into his temptation. And then we see his humanity revealed at the very beginning of our scripture verses today. In verse 1, it says, Jesus was tempted by the devil, who is also called the tempter or Satan. Jesus is fully God. Yes, we saw that. But he's also fully human, and he lives fully in our world. But the reason we see Jesus being tempted directly by Satan is because Jesus has no sin nature in himself. He is fully human, and he can be tempted, but he did not sin. On the contrary, as humans, for us, our sin nature is part of who we are from the moment we are born. Now, I have three kids, and um, not that all kids are born evil, but they are certainly a little self-centered, right? They must be held on demand, they must be fed on their schedule, they fuss at the slightest thing, and at the beginning they can't seem to sleep for more than two to three hours themselves without waking up mom or dad too. They make the world revolve around themselves, and they certainly aren't living into the Philippians 2 mindset, which says do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit and consider others better than yourselves. I've always wondered too that if when Jesus was a babe, did he let his mother Mary know that he needed something with just a small coup? Did he sleep through the night from the moment he was born? I mean, we do sing Silent Night at Christmas. Now, whether Jesus did or didn't cry as an infant probably doesn't matter as much, but what does matter is that he, is, he cannot be tempted like us. We are born with sin. Jesus was born into a world of sin. James 1 verses 13 and 14 says, When tempted, no one can say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So God, or in this case, God's son, Jesus, cannot be tempted by evil in him because there is none. Jesus had to be tempted directly by Satan himself. On the other hand, we as humans are tempted through what already resides in us. It is our own evil desires and sin within us that tempt us away from God. So even though Jesus was physically weakened from fasting like we would have been because he was human, 
he was not tempted as we would have been. But the reason that I believe Jesus as human went with the Spirit intentionally to go through the wilderness to be tempted was so that we could relate to him even more so, seeing that he could both experience yet another thing like us, and then so we could also follow his example out of temptation. So now we come to the temptation of Christ. He is tempted three times by Satan, and I see it as three different areas of struggle for us. The first way we see Jesus tempted is physically. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and he's already physically weakened. I can barely fast from one meal without feeling physically weakened and to be honest, also pretty grumpy. (laughs) But Jesus has been fasting for 40 days to depend on God alone, but his physical state is still very hungry. He has given up food because he knows, as he tells the devil later, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 Jesus is choosing to feast on God's word, not human food. So Satan then looks to tempt him what is with what his most obvious need and desire is, with food. Satan is trying to convince Jesus that he needs to neglect the idea that God is going to take care of all of our physical needs. He wants him to distrust his father's care and take matters into his own hands. Satan knows that Jesus has the power to turn stones into bread, to fill his empty belly with his own power. But by doing so, Jesus would be rejecting God's provision of his own life. Jesus would be filling a temporary need and leaving an internal need empty. We see this again when Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman at the well and he promises her this living and eternal water. And again, when the disciples return to that same well with food, Jesus states he's already had food to eat. Where did this food come from, they wondered. He says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me, says Jesus. Jesus is filled and fueled by eternal things that can last forever. Satan was just trying to put the physical ahead of the spiritual and convince Jesus to do the same. But we are spiritual beings first, and Jesus recognized this. Spiritual first, physical second. But what does this say about us when we become so concerned with the care of our physical bodies while we neglect the care of our spiritual ones? This is just the first temptation by Satan to Jesus. And honestly, I think if I were in Jesus' shoes, I would miss the point that when I feed my physical being more than I feed my spiritual being, I am doubting God's care of myself. Which makes sense. We live in this world that says, if you want it, go get it. You deserve that extra candy, dessert, or drink. Need more time to yourself? Take it. Focus on you first. You deserve the best. Better get ready for summer and swimsuits again, right? You might as well buy the new thing you've wanted because everyone else is going to have it. Don't have enough money to buy it? Borrow it. Get what you need now. The world's value of our physical appearance and comfort is so high, and too often I mistake this lie for the truth. Yet Jesus says, Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But seek first the spiritual and then fill the physical. Jesus chose to trust God's provision of him, both the physical and the spiritual. 
The second way in which we see Jesus is tempted is through testing of God's protection instead of resting in God's protection. So he's trying to test him of whether he's going to test God's protection or rest in his protection. You will notice too that Satan switches his technique in round two. Jesus quoted scripture the first time to refute the first temptation, but now Satan uses the same tactic to try to beat Jesus at his own words. The verse Satan pulls from is Psalm 91:11. but let me read it to you in context starting in verse 9. It says, If you make the Most High your dwelling, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that they will, you will not strike your foot against a stone. All these promises from God in these verses, being without harm, no disaster, the protection of angels, they all hinge on those first seven words. If you make the Most High your dwelling. So in other words, your home, your habitation, your safe place is caught up in the Lord. It is with the Lord. He is your Father, your home. That's because of your love of God through prayer with the Lord and his timing. He will deliver you from trouble. And then those times that we're in the midst of trouble, God will also be with you since your home is together. This scripture encourages us to make our home in Christ, to rest in him, not to test him. Home is honestly the place that we are the most comfortable, you know, where you're not afraid to let your guard down and rest. Our home in Christ is the same. It is our comfort and is the place that we are even more fully seen and known, more so than our physical homes. To know not just about Christ, but to know him personally. And when we do this first and foremost by knowing his word and listening to his voice in the word of God. When we are at home in Christ, we are better at knowing the word and the voice of our good shepherd. When we are at home in the word of God, we are able to know his word and what it means for us. Now Jesus, because he knew his identity in God the Father, he knew his home was with the Lord, he recognized that Satan was trying to twist the meaning of this verse during his second temptation. He was at home with the Father, and so he understood the true meaning of the verse that Satan misquoted. But this isn't the first time Satan's misquoted scripture or misused it. Actually, Satan has been twisting the meaning of scripture since the beginning of time. Think of Eve in the Garden of Eden when Satan sowed that seed of doubt in her heart. Manipulation of scripture is a common tactic that Satan will use on us as well, but one that we must work to combat against. I'm sure we've all heard discussions or been a part of discussions when someone then pulls out a verse to use it in their reasoning for something. And it very well could be used correctly, but it's times like this that I think we need to perhaps read the rest of the passage and make sure it does say what was implied. Acts is one of my favorite books of the Bible because it is so action-packed and it marks the beginning of and the growth of the early Christian church. Well, in Acts 17, Paul is preaching to a group of people in the region of Berea, the Bereans. Now, undoubtedly, this group of people had heard of Paul and his conversion and his witness and his ministry to Christians and Gentiles. But when Paul visits with them, they don't just take him at his word. It says they received the word with great eagerness and then examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I think that's a great motivation for us to work to be like the Bereans, to not just hear the word from someone else, but to take it to study it, and ask the Spirit to open your eyes to see and my ears to hear. We've talked about the importance of this book being in our daily lives and our healthy series, but it so much comes back to the Word of God. 
a book, not the Bible, but a book that I recently read provided the imagery that the Bible is our daily bread, not a sweet dessert that I should enjoy on occasion only. Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34 tells us. When scripture becomes our daily bread, it becomes our foundation, our solid rock upon which we can build our days. And then when we hear the world, or really Satan, whisper to you and say something like, you are unloved, or you are unworthy, or you are not good enough for Christ's love, you can speak with confidence and say, no, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on me. The word of God fully equips the people of God for the work that we have each day. In the third and final temptation, we see Satan switch his method yet again. He no longer hides the fact that if by succumbing to these temptations, Jesus would then be putting Satan ahead of God. He just states it out right out in verse 9. He no longer hides what he wants, which is that Jesus bow down and worship him. And perhaps he does this because he dangles what is most desired and dear to Jesus, the kingdoms of the world, really the people of the world. Now for Jesus, this would have nothing to do with the wealth and the prosperity of the kingdoms, which is what I first saw when I read it through a human lens. But to Jesus, it would have been the people he so dearly loves and having them know that he, God, is still king of all. I imagine that this would have sounded great to Jesus, being physically weakened and tired, exhausted. And this is really what we pray each week, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is already in heaven. Jesus knows what it's like in heaven, and he is excited to see it one day be fulfilled on earth as well. Satan's giving him a glimpse of this. And so standing on top of this high place with Satan, Jesus is seeing a sliver of what he normally sees seated at God's right hand in heaven. How wonderful it would have been to have the kingdoms of the world acknowledge the true king again. Satan knows this would have been tempting for a physically weakened Jesus. But we have to remember that just six weeks before this, Jesus was baptized and declared by God to be God's son. He already has dominion over the earth. He already has the kingdoms under him. He is here as a human because he chose to love us and become one like us. Jesus, though, was being tempted by something he already has authority over. The reason Satan tempts him with something he already has is because Satan hopes that in his tiredness, Jesus will forget the truth. And so often I think that us as humans can do this as well. I can so easily forget that God is the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings because of what I see around me. We operate as if Christ hasn't already won the battle over sin and death because we see evil and heartache and broken lives and tragedy and we wonder when it will all end. As Christians, though, God has already won the battle over sin and death, and we must walk in the confidence in this knowledge. Philippians 1.6 tells us, Being confident of this, that he began a good work, will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We are living in this, this hard area of the already, but not yet. God's already won the ultimate battle of sin over death. He has already been resurrected, and we have eternal life and safety caught up in our home in the Lord. But we're not yet there. We're not yet in heaven. Jesus has not come back again his second time. And though, although he's tired and worn down, Jesus is still confident in the world, that God, in the work that God is doing, and he does not forget that God is the ultimate winner over death and evil. Now, a verse that people often use when we talk about temptation 
And when we're struggling with it and we're seeing all the, the defeat in the world and we are tempted ourselves, a verse that's often used is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And in my Bible, it reads, No temptation has overcome you, overtaken you except what is common to man. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I used to not like this verse at all. I have heard it plenty of times throughout my life, high school, college, beyond. And so every time I'd be tempted and then sin, whether through my anger or lust or idolatry, I would hear this verse come to mind and see it as a failure, as my failure. Thoughts would swirl in my mind and I'd think, what's common to everyone else that they can overcome, but I can't. This sin is regular and normal and common, and I can't overcome it. I am a failure. For many years, I have always felt defeated by this verse. And then once, I happened to stumble upon a different translation that said humanity in the place of man or woman. And you probably understood this verse verse long before I learned, but the word humanity somehow resonated differently with me because then it included Jesus. The word became human, right, and dwelt among us. Yes, he was God, but he had a human side. Jesus was the Son of God but he was also human. And this verse that had condemned me in my sin for so long now pointed me to see Christ in it as well. That Jesus himself, in his human likeness, struggled with the very things that I wrestle with. It isn't just me and my flesh or my neighbors struggling in theirs. It is all of humanity. All together we wrestle with sin and temptation just like our Savior chose to. And fortunately, we don't only have the author of our humanity, but the perfecter the conqueror of our humanity as well. He experienced this temptation and overcame it. No wonder the verse finishes with, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. Jesus was human, so he could be able to experience temptation like me, making it common for all of us. If God can experience temptation, then it does become common for all of us. He is the perfecter of our humanity, thereby showing that there is a way out of temptation and struggle. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 no longer condemned me, but freed me from my burden of failure. Jesus doesn't just know about my struggle. He experienced it firsthand. That is why nothing has seized me or bogged me down except what is common to humanity, to Christ as well as everyone else. It's because Christ himself is both fully human and fully man, fully God and fully man. And it's common to him because he is God for he created it all and he experienced it too. He is the God who sees me in my sin and struggle. He not only forgives me, but he also knows how to overcome it. What's so unique about this third temptation though, is that it's the only one in which Jesus gives Satan a command to leave him. In all three, he uses scripture, but this time he also yells, away from me, Satan. And I think we can use the same tactic as well when we encounter temptation. Of course, in some circumstances, I think it would be completely appropriate to quote exactly what Jesus says and command the evil to leave us, and at times this is really appropriate. But for most other times, I think it is us that has to move. If I am struggling with comparing myself and my life to others because I'm scrolling through social media, I should turn off my phone, shut my computer, put it away, and move and do something else. If I'm trying to prioritize spending some time in the Word or complete my Easter devotional each night before bed, then I probably shouldn't be sitting in my favorite TV watching chair with my remote nearby. I need to move and find a new spot. 
when I'm frustrated and angry about something I'm working on and I'm just stuck in my head and I'm so angry at whatever's going on, it doesn't help me to remain in the same spot to dwell on my problem at hand. I should move away from the temptation to lash out in anger, to yell at my kids as I'm frustrated. I need to take a step back, to breathe, to pray, and then to reevaluate. Jesus gives this example. He uses scripture, scripture, and then action with scripture. So what comes next after these three temptations? After Jesus rightly refuses Satan these three times, he then receives care from angels. God tells us that nothing will be beyond, beyond what we can bear, and this is the gift that Jesus receives at the end of his temptations. Angels come to attend to him. This word also means to care for, to serve, or to minister to, so the angels came and probably fed him physically as well as spiritually, affirming who he is in, in God. Even though these 40 days would have been really physically intense and exhausting, this attending by angels gives him what he needs to continue to bear. The angels refresh him completely. Because right after this, we see Jesus enter into a very public phase of ministry. Now, at the start of this passage, we see Jesus confirmed as God's son before he's being tempted. Now, with the trials complete, he is replenished in a new way to start his ministry. I even feel like you could say that this period of temptation was in preparation for what was to come. That in his time in the wilderness, it encouraged and developed his reliance on God in all things, so that now he could head towards his years in ministry and then ultimately the cross, relying on God with every step, because God was his daily bread yet again. Jason has this daily calendar on his desk at work and it has these short little devotions with a scripture and um, he shared one with me recently that talked about how the heart of Jesus was pure and peaceful coming from James 3.7. It shared how when the disciples were fretting about a problem like feeding of the 5,000, Jesus wasn't. He was at peace. And more so, Jesus thanked God for the problem. And it made me wonder, what if I were to thank God for my temptation? to thank him for the opportunity to invite him into my struggle, to thank him for revealing more of my sin nature and giving me a chance instead to rely on his greater power. David's Psalm of see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting is the same idea. I can't pray that prayer, see if there's anything offensive in me, and then not expect God to change me. There will be always a sin nature in myself to get rid of. On this side of heaven, I won't ever be free of it, but with Christ, I can work to remove its hold on me little by little by inviting him in and thanking him for the struggles. So I wonder if the next time that you're wrestling with something, you could ask yourself a question like this. What could this temptation or struggle be preparing me for? How could what I am going through now be an encouragement to someone later on? How does knowing that Jesus was attempted encourage me now? How could this temptation even be drawing me closer to God? The last verse I want to share with you today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is sharing with others about a great trouble or temptation that has overcome him or that has come his way. And while he's prayed continually about it, he has not overcome it fully. It still nags at him. In one instance in his prayer, the Lord actually replies back to Paul saying, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. What a comfort that would have been for Paul to know that his Savior completes him in his weakness. My struggle then and my temptations are opportunities for me to experience my Savior's power. 
Paul then continues in his thoughts to his readers in Corinthians saying, then I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And now then 2000 years later, we can find comfort in these same words when we hear that we should be delighting in our weaknesses and in our insults and in our hardships. And I think he also could have said in our temptations. In these things, we should delight, not avoid. To, go, to allow God's power to be revealed more through my weakness. To give him thanks for more of God's power at work in me in times of temptation. Jesus willingly and beautifully followed the Spirit into a time of fasting and temptation. And Jesus used that time to draw nearer to God. For man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. For when Satan came to tempt him, where did he turn? To his father's word. When Satan offered the kingdoms of the world, what did he remember? That his identity and his home was with God. Jesus knew he would be stronger in God when he was weak. So when we are tempted, thank God for the problem. Use it as a chance to bring you closer to Christ. Jesus has been there and he knows our struggle. He sees us and he's ready to be with us in temptation and struggle so that we too can experience closeness with the Father. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To stay up to date with all of Bethlehem Covenant Church's information and events, head to bccwaverly.org.